The views in this do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Good afternoon, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle, a student-run, student-scripted, and student-produced news show on 88.1 WKNC slash HD1 Raleigh. I'm Nick Weaver. I'm Jamie Vivi. And I'm Marissa Jordan. We've got a few great segments to start off the new year continued here at Eye on the Triangle. First, Marissa will give you a look at some local news, including a death in police custody. Then Will Mayo and Matt Schneider bring you an interview with Dr. Bird about the scientific study of hemp. And then finally, Colleen Keenan Ferguson brings you Gen Ed this week. She talks about transfer students. She talks about the transfer student experience at NC State. Stay tuned. Family speaks. Raleigh man dies in police custody. Raleigh, North Carolina. This week, the family of a man who died in Raleigh police custody is hoping to have more answers. Curtis Roman Mangum began showing signs of medical distress last Wednesday after he was taken into custody with another suspect. He later died after being transferred to Wake Med, and his mother is barely able to speak through her grief. Betty Johnson in her own words. I want justice. The police system, all this needs to change to make it better than what it is. Save Our Sons and the Police Accountability Community Task Force, PACT, are working to help the family find out more information about what transpired before Mangum began to have medical problems. The Raleigh Police Department says it is following procedure for in-custody deaths, and the chief of police will send a report to the city manager within five business days. The State Bureau of Investigation is now handling the case. Kimberly Mukhtarian with Save Our Sons says while the case is still being investigated, Mangum's death illustrates a larger problem that must be addressed. Our weakest and our poorest people are vulnerable. We are asking for transparency because in cases like this, the general public does not know. The only persons who know are witnesses, if there are any, and the police department who has privy rights to all video footage. Family spokesperson Andrea Jones says Mangum was at the wrong place at the wrong time, and his passing leaves a huge gap in his community. It's just a sad situation that, you know, the police are trying to criminalize him before they humanize him. He was a son, first of all. He was a magnificent, outstanding father. He had a heart of gold. He would give you the shoes off of his feet, the shirt off of his back. The family is asking for an external review of the officer's conduct in the case. This has been Marissa Jordan for Eye on the Triangle. Hello, 88.1 WKNC. You are tuned into Eye on the Triangle. This is a part two in a several-part series on hemp. I have here with me a special guest. Will you introduce yourself, please? I'm Dr. Med Bird. I am a teaching associate professor over in the paper science and engineering program, and I've been working off and on with industrial hemp as a research area for over 20 years. That is pretty exciting stuff. Uh, would you say that you are kind of a pioneer in this field 20 years ago? Oh, no. Uh, 
I am a dilettante. Um, my specialty in research is alternative fibers, even though it must be recognized that wood is an almost perfect way to supply fiber for papermaking. If you start on the basis that wood is bad for paper because it's bad for the environment, then you're starting off on the wrong foot to begin with. That being said, nature gives us a variety of different kinds of plants, and sometimes we can get unique properties from those plants, and so they're worth looking at. So over the past 20 years, I've looked at kudzu and um, and uh, wheat straw and rice straw and corn stalk and bamboo, industrial hemp, canaf. So there's been a variety of them. Uh, I met with some people a couple of weeks ago that were representatives of a hemp supplier, and uh, they, they seem to be convinced that hemp is actually a better resource for paper than trees are uh, in terms of production per square land area and so on. Can you speak at all to that? Well, you have to look at the whole thing, and people who think hemp is better for paper than wood, A, don't understand the current supply system, and B, want to sell hemp. So those two things drive that. They often mean well, but they are not coming from a data-based decision. So you have to look at what is the life cycle of a plant that's going to be turned into paper. So if you look at the annual crops, like hemp, versus the perennial crop, like wood, wood is technically a perennial crop because you know, it stays there for about 30 years, and then you harvest it and start again. So wood grows very densely, and most of its mass grows up. It can be stored on the stump, so you only have to cut the tree down when you need it, and you need to keep a minimum inventory. If you've got 1,000 acres of hemp in the fall, when it's time to harvest, you better harvest before the winter rains come and rot it in the field. And then you've got your whole year supply of raw material that you've got to store somewhere because your paper process is running one day at a time. So now you've got a warehouse inventory issue. And what happens to that raw material? Does it rot if you don't keep it well? And plus, for proper use, hemp has to be what we call redded. It has to be allowed to lay in the field for a certain amount of time so that natural bacterial enzymatic action separates the outer stem, the bast, which is a furry material with long fibers from the woody core, which we call the herd. And so that means that your field is sitting there, and if you if you leave it there too long, it rots. If you don't leave it long enough, you don't get good separation. It sounds like hemp may be a really good resource for other types of end products, but not necessarily paper. Well, so here comes the, the value proposition. So we have to do better by our farmers. We have not done well by our farmers. Farmers get it on the chin every time. We being the United States? Yes, the public. So we give a lot of money to the middleman, and we give a lot of, a lot of um, profit at the end of the chain, but we, don't, we pay a pittance to the farmers. And we tend to tell farmers what they can't do instead of giving options what they can do. I come from a farming family. And it's been said that the land in the area of North Carolina east of the I-95 corridor is one of the poorest areas of the country. But it has some incredible farmland, good rain, good sun, and lots and lots of fallow land because people don't know what to grow. Now, I'm not a farming economics person, but that's what I understand. It's been said that eastern North Carolina, east of the I-95 corridor, is poorer than Mississippi. That's not good. So we need to give farmers options, and hemp could be an option. And the reason that a lot of people get excited about hemp, there's two reasons. One of them is 
they believe it's an environmental miracle plant that's going to save us from our environmental sins. Ain't no such thing. We got into the state we're in in a very complex way, and it's going to take a complex way to get us out. So a lot of people see hemp as a salvation plant. It's magical properties are going to save us. Not going to happen. But it is a crop that gives you a fiber that could be used for paper, a fiber that can be made into textiles, a food crop in the form of seed meal, oil in the form of seed oil. And, it, and so it has, and you can make rope out of it and tarps and canvases. So it has a lot of different products if people are willing to buy it. It's also very easy on the land. It doesn't require the same level of agrochemicals that, say, cotton or tobacco do. And it has incredibly good yield. It's an easy grow. And so that would be good for farmers if we could get everybody's act together to say, would you like to grow this and I'll buy the herd for this for animal bedding or for some sort of filler material or to make particle board out of. And I'll buy the bast and I'll use it as a replacement for glass fibers in reinforcing plastic panels to try to make them more recyclable or incineratable when the life of the car or the thing is done. So if you could get this coordinated strategy, it could very well be a good crop for farmers. But instead, we tell the farmers, no, you can't grow it unless you have a permit. And the DEA takes a dim view of it because they consider it the same as marijuana. I was actually going to segue into that conversation. Would you say uh, that the political atmosphere towards hemp and its relation to marijuana today is the same, better, or worse than it was 20 years ago when you started your hemp research? Um, it's probably the same. I'm sitting here looking at I brought a newspaper clipping. It says, and it's from 1998, front page of the News and Observer, picture of me with my ugly mug holding a handful of industrial hemp and some paper we've made from it. And, of course, they picked Hardy Har Har. Professor pushes industrial hemp. And I'm talking clever. And I'm talking almost 20 years ago. And some of the same points here in print are the same points I'm making here on this show. Um, it's so funny. It seems like we call hemp and non-wood fibers a pulsar. It pulses on, then it disappears. It pulses on again, and it disappears. Same thing with bamboo and canaf. And now the hemp pulsar is pulsing because I think maybe what's happening with marijuana legalization. So the audience should know it's all cannabis sativa, but... Industrial hemp is the low THC version. It's also called native hemp. And it used to grow wild in, especially in places like Kentucky and Missouri. They call it ditch weed. And it was encouraged to be grown uh, during the World Wars as a source of fiber because cotton was in a short supply. And farmers were encouraged to grow it. It has a low THC level. Below 0.3% for those of you that are curious. And you know, the standard joke, and of course I say it every time, is you'd have to smoke a joint the size of a telephone pole to get an even moderate buzz out of it. Um, we had a bale of it in our lab, and it kept getting smaller, and then it stopped because I think all that people got out of it was a real bad headache. So somebody found certain cultivars that the THC was higher in, and they found out it had delightful properties. And so there was a lot of crossbreeding that went on, and that begat the modern marijuana plant, which is a high THC uh, cannabis sativa plant. And, of course, then, because that's a drug, the DEA steps in, and it's regulated, and in most states outlawed. And the DEA still uh, 
says you can't grow industrial hemp without a permit because you'll sneak marijuana into it. And that's, if you ask our friends in law enforcement in Canada, in Germany, in England, they'll laugh at you. They say that would be very hard to do because you plant the two plants differently. If you're planting cannabis sativa as marijuana, you really want lots of leaf, right? That's where the highest concentration of the resin is. And so you plant them with spacing like you would a tobacco plant because you want those leaves to reach out. And so if you fly over a field of marijuana, it looks kind of light green. You plant industrial hemp for minimum leaf and maximum stem. So you plant it with a seed drill like you would wheat. You want the stem. And so it looks dark green. So if the DEA got in their drug copter and flew over a field and they saw cannabis, dark, 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 light, nuke it, and you're done. So it sounds like the uh, social conjunction between hemp and marijuana might be perpetuated by people that, that want to maintain control over this crop. All right, there's a couple of conspiracy theories. We shouldn't dabble in conspiracy theories, but they're fun. And so I went to several meetings of the North American Industrial Hemp Council, and I was actually an invited guest speaker. And they kind of liked me and hated me because I would always tell them what they didn't want to hear about how good wood was for paper, but they liked the fact that I was up front. And you'd go to these conferences, and here would be this audience, and it would be a very strange combination of people. Up at the front would be all these farmers and farmers' advocates and solid citizens of the community desperately wanting to make farmers' lives better and with the best intent. And then sitting in the back would be this row of people with tam and hooded robes. Hooded robes. And, then, and as soon as we'd go out for a coffee break, they would blaze up. And you'd say, well, what do they, re- are they really care about farmers' issues? Or are they secretly... Do they? So some of the industrial hemp movement is contaminated with people who really want to push a marijuana agenda. I, you would expect that, right? Sure. The other conspiracy theory is, I'm probably going to get in a lot of trouble for saying this. Mm, let me think about this. Is that it is commonly taken that the most profitable agricultural crop in North Carolina is marijuana, as it is in many states that have good climate. Everybody knows where it is. Everybody knows where it's being grown, but it provides such a revenue stream via sales, kickbacks, cover-ups, that it's a system that some people don't want to mess with. And so what you have to understand in some ways, again, I'm not a plant pathologist, biologist, or whatever. I'm just a chemical engineer, paper engineer. But I was told by a person who was that if you wanted to go after and destroy marijuana, the best thing you could do is to plant industrial hemp because its pollen with its low THC genes goes into the air, breeds with your marijuana plants, and drags the THC level down because there's much more industrial hemp than marijuana. So it's going to dilute the germplasm and that, um, and that it, will, it would be a great biological warfare agent against marijuana, and there are people who simply don't want that to happen. On the flip side of that coin, wouldn't the pollen from the higher THC marijuana fertilize? Look at the ratios. You grow, you're going to grow hundreds of thousands of acres of industrial hemp if it, if it goes, but you only have a, you know, not that much marijuana. Marijuana is planted here and there in small patches. So it's, it's a matter of 
margins and scale. Can you speak at all to that ratio in places like California or Colorado where recreational use of marijuana has become normalized or legalized? I have absolutely no feel for what acreage of, of marijuana is being grown in the states where it's legal now. And, and, and of course, it's probably increasing as we speak. It's growing absolutely because it's a lot of tax dollars there. Do you think that the hemp and marijuana industries can actually work together to help push each other's agendas, or are they just two completely conflicting ideas? Hmm. Uh, I I don't know how to answer that because they're they're both looking for the same thing, which is profits. Uh, one would be called a specialty profit, so the marijuana would be the the high value crop. And the industrial hemp would be the commodity type of crop. So, High versus low margin type crops. Right. Right. So um, it's it's an interesting proposition. My basic premise is we should always look out for our farmers. And instead of telling them you can't plant this, let them plant it. And let the cruelest arbiter is not the law and not the DEA. It's the market. Absolutely. The market will ar- arbitrate. The money will dictate what happens. And so, you know, I'm glad to see that there's a industrial hemp commission in North Carolina and that they are granting licenses. That's a step in the right direction. I have a colleague who's actually working on a process that could extract an extremely, extremely value biopharmaceutical compound from industrial hemp that brings huge margins, just as good as marijuana, and helps people's health. You're talking about CBD? Yes. And so CBD, if it goes, that could flip this. Because now the CBD pays for the crop to be grown. And now, since you've covered the cost with the value-added product, now you have freedom to find someone who will take the byproduct, the herd, or the bast, and now you can sell it to them at a reasonable price. They'll buy it. They'll build the market. And now the chicken and the egg are satisfied, and the loop starts building, and farmers win. So the uh, advent of CBD and medical use of the hemp plant without THC content or with minimal THC content uh, could potentially be extremely useful to the hemp industry? Yes. And so that is ongoing right now. There's, there's research going on right now that could change the whole paradigm. That's very exciting stuff. Uh, I, I do want to put you on the spot about this. We can cut this out in post if you want to, but uh, I understand that you have a, a close friend that some people may know that is quite an advocate of uh, your, your hemp research and foray into this field. Can you speak to the subject? Oh, sure. So um, if you're in the non-wood business and if you deal in research, you meet the most interesting people. And so I've met incredible people in, in my 20 years of doing research on this. And somehow the actor Woody Harrelson found out that we were doing research in non-woods and really wanted to look at research into industrial hemp. So uh, in addition to being a great actor, he is passionate about the environment and he's willing to put his money where his mouth is. He might not know what he's talking about, but he's willing to try, which is more than you can say for a lot of other people with means, fame, and money. And so he was willing to put money to try to develop a alternative to wood for paper. And I pushed back on him. 
and told him how good wood was for paper and that maybe he should look at developing a specialty thing, maybe a, a, a woody line of paper. That's, that's a, that's a paradox right there. Um, and so uh, I actually was a consultant for him and actually uh, have flown out to California and met with him and talked. He is a great guy and he's passionate about the environment and he's tried several different investments to look at ways to develop paper, not only from hemp, but also from flax, which is the, um, the plant where you get linen or linseed oil from. It's uh, and grown a lot in Canada and they have a lot of that. And boy, that's even more challenging than hemp. Uh, the flax fiber is 60 millimeters long. My goodness. It's like nature's rope. Sounds, sounds about right. And when you cook flax, you end up with nothing but giant mop heads that, um, are very difficult to deal with. So that's a different topic. But I have worked with Woody Harrelson um, and I still occasionally hear from him. He's still very passionate about the environment. I don't think he's doing anything with hemp right now. Well, at least not industrial hemp. <laughs> yeah, we'll try to create that social distinction here. Uh, industrial hemp and Recreational marijuana, two totally different things, and uh, the societal distinction between that is pretty crucial towards making a profitable and legal hemp industry uh, and kind of advocating for that social change. Yeah, it's interesting what the next decade is going to bring. North Carolina is a very conservative state, uh, even more so now of late than it used to be. It was progressive there for a while, and now it's regressed. Uh, not Raleigh, of course. Not Raleigh, of course. Um, and so it's very interesting to see, though, once we continue to see those giant tax revenues coming in from legal marijuana, how long will conservatism be able to push back on what could be an enormous source of revenue for the state, for the counties, or whatever? And so it's very interesting to see. Then if, if marijuana becomes legal, what does that do in turn for the industrial hemp industry? Does it remove gates or does it matter since we've got permitting now? Well, this is all very exciting stuff. Uh, thank you for shedding some light on the subject, Dr. Bird. Is there anything else that you'd like to add before we wrap up today? No, it's just, it's, it's, it's an interesting topic and it's on the burner and it's boiling right now and uh, new developments are underway. Some I can speak about, some I can't, but uh, it's, it's going to be, uh, we may be looking at a very different situation three years from now. Uh, is there a reason for that three-year metric? Well, CBD is a part of it, uh, and maybe a few other things that people are looking at as far as uh, things that we can get out of hemp. So it's, I, it's, it's good for everybody to maintain an open mind, right, clear communications, transparency, and I would always stress what is good for our farmers. We must take care of our farmers. Okay. Uh, well, I appreciate your time, Dr. Bird. I just thought of one more question. Uh, do you think that lobbyists for big pharma or l big uh, like alcohol companies or anything like that are trying to maintain the conjunction between hemp and marijuana to try and keep a potential competitor at bay? Mm, that's a conspiracy theory that's beyond my pay grade. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Verd, and uh, please feel free to tune in in the future for further episodes on hemp. Yeah, thanks for having me.
You're listening to Gen Ed, a podcast about general student issues related to North Carolina State University. Gen Ed is recorded from the production room at WKNC 88.1 FM, NC State's student-run radio station. My name is Colleen Keenan-Ferguson, the retiring podcast manager at WKNC. Today's episode is all about the transfer student experience at NC State. Did you know that one in five students who graduate from NC State transferred here from another university or college? Every year, more than 1,200 transfer students are admitted to NC State, and overall, their experience is unique compared to that of a student who is admitted right out of high school. For this podcast, I sat down with Michael Coombs, Director of New Student Programs, and Jenna Martella, Coordinator of New Student Programs. We talked about some of the issues transfer students face and the unique qualities that help them flourish and find success at NC State. I also talked with Jake Phillips, a senior studying structural and molecular biochemistry and environmental science. Jake transferred to NC State from UNC Wilmington in the summer of 2014. He gave me his perspective on what it's like transferring to NC State. For a full list of podcast episodes, be sure and follow us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash WKNC881. Look us up on the iTunes store for full access to our downloadable podcasts. For more programming from WKNC, be sure and follow our blog, blog.wknc.org. Enjoy listening. I'm Jenna Martella. I'm the coordinator of new student programs. And I'm Michael Coombs, the director of new student programs. Okay, could you uh, walk us through the transfer process kind of briefly? Yeah, so real quick um, run through is that a student needs to decide whether or not they're interested in NC State University and then they apply to the university obviously through undergraduate admissions and admissions will look at their past history, whether it's one institution or many institutions their high school potentially, and then make a decision about whether the student will be successful here and then whether or not the student uh, matches kind of what the institution is looking for in um, their various majors. So, Do you think uh, transferring schools um, may lengthen the amount of time it takes for students to complete their degree? It very much depends on the program that they're going into um, and also what their intent and where they're at in their career interest and development. So some folks may go to a community college to get some gen eds out of the way, um, but still may come out and still be really looking at programs in different directions they could go with their career. So when that decision happens, this largely what affects the student's um, ability. Um, it also depends on what program they come into here at NC State. Um, so for example, some of our curriculums are specific to being four-year programs, for example, some of the ones in the College of Design. And so if a student really wants to go into that program, that may just be a contingency to matriculating into it. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of factors that go into it outside of that, as well as other pieces or requirements for their career if they're planning on doing internships or externships as a part of their time as well. I would also throw in that if you look at some of our surveys, most of our students are anticipating staying here two to three years. And when you look at their credits and ask them how are their credits are transferring in, most of the time it's meeting their expectations. So hopefully that means they're able to plan accordingly mm -hmm. and fairly accurately when they're making the plans that Jenna talked about. And obviously with some of those things like study abroad or internships, co-ops, the great thing is we want them to be participating in that. We want them to be getting those experiences. So it may impact their 
the length of their stay, but at the same time, there's a trade-off there mm -hmm. that's um, some pretty successful students obviously taking advantage of those opportunities. So we want to encourage that as well. And if it allows them to be more prepared as they're going into the workforce, mm -hmm. that, like Michael said, that trade-off can be certainly beneficial than that extra semester or however much time ends up being. Do you have any advice for students... Do you have any advice for students who may be interested in transferring to NC State or are already in the process? Yes, we do. So I'll go through a couple things. I know Jenna has some, some thoughts as well, but a couple of things. If you're looking at kind of beforehand, I would say students should do their homework. So understand the academic environment they're coming into, if this is a great fit for them as a research institution, the program that they're coming into, what does it take to be successful there, what are the requirements? How does it fit into their current plans and their future plans? I would also say do their homework on what type of institution it is culturally. Mm -hmm. Understand what um, the NC State community stands for, our values. Is mm -hmm. that something that aligns with their personal values? Um, understand the opportunities that are they're coming into and does that align with what they're looking for? A couple other things. Ask questions about the process, whether it's admissions or orientation or once they arrive. Mm -hmm. um, asking questions because the reality is we can't read students' minds. Mm -hmm. And so we don't necessarily know what a student has questions about or what a student needs um, without that communication. Um, one of the things I, I think, too, is expect to be challenged academically as well as kind of socially and emotionally. Mm -hmm. um, Transition is difficult at, no matter what point in your life it is, whether you're a you know, 65-year-old who's retiring or an 18-year-old transferring in or a 20-year-old transferring in. So expect to be challenged. Obviously, academically, the classes may be different. The expectations may be different. The course of study may be different. So realizing that, um, understanding that transitioning to a social, a different social environment is obviously can be difficult. So how are they going to engage in our community? How are they going to connect with other students and faculty and staff? And then obviously, emotionally, um, Realizing that there may be obstacles that they encounter, but they have the ability. They've shown it in previous institutions, so they have the ability to be successful. It's just having that self-efficacy to realize, I can do this, and it's okay. It's just a setback. It's not the end of the road. And then the last thing I would say is plan from the get-go. Plan what type of academics you're going to be um, utilizing here, or what kind of course of study you're going to take. But also plan your, your co-curricular that Jenna talked about earlier. So figure out how do I take advantage of study abroad? How do I take advantage of cooperative education or undergraduate research? Or just how do I get involved on campus? How am I going to participate in intramurals? Mm -hmm. um, or how am I going to do my time management to go to the gym and, and keep that wellness aspect up as well? So those would be my thoughts. Jenna? I would say reflect upon your experience at the institution or institutions you've been at in the past. Um, obviously, there's a variety of reasons students may choose to transfer, whether it's they have an, we have an academic program here that they didn't have or they didn't have a good experience in that one of those social, emotional, transitional realms at their previous institution or institution. Institutions. And so what did or didn't you get in your previous institution? What do you want to continue to have? Or what opportunities are you hoping to take advantage of that maybe you didn't have before? And look for what resources or ways you can learn about that. So if you're coming into orientation, you've made the decision to come here, looking for sessions that are going to help you, help you answer those questions, um, utilizing resources that can help you, and whether that means taking extra time to talk to your academic advisor, whether that means coming to programs um, that we've designed to help you figure out that new institution and the way it works and some of the structures, because often that can be the challenge to getting those into those pathways of student involvement. I would also say um, take advantage of opportunities 
opportunities to connect with other transfer students. Unlike first-year students where there's a lot of first-year students coming in at one time, you can kind of tell first-year students oftentimes they're wearing the t-shirts, you know. Um, transfer student is not a visible identity. And so when you have opportunities to find folks who may have similar experiences to you, who may be able to relate with some of your same um, struggles or difficulties, take advantage of meeting and engaging with that population. Um, and then also just getting involved both academically and socially. Um, a lot of times there's that pressure that I may have less time here at the institution than a first-year student coming in, so I need to only focus on my career. I only need to focus on my academics. But as Michael discussed, that transition happens academically, it happens socially, it happens emotionally, it happens in every aspect of your life. And so finding ways um, you can help balance that with involvement on campus, using resources on campus, um, even things as simple as the fact that NC State has free tutoring and a counseling center that are both opportunities for students to engage and receive resources and support that you may not have had at your other institution. Finding out what those things are, what you're going to need, and how you can be proactive about that as you're making that transition on the front end instead of waiting till you may really need them and haven't even done your homework. And so obviously knowing that they're there nonetheless, but it can always make it a little less stressful um, if it's part of the planning process and not reactive. So are there any kind of general issues you see transfer students dealing with every year? I would say I kind of touched on the last question, but not having enough time in that students putting surmounting pressure on themselves that a traditional first year student who's like, I've got four years, which seems like a lot of time. Um, so coming in already with that additional pressure or feeling like they're behind, um, I think is a pretty general um, experience that we hear from a lot of transfer students. I think also finding community in the institution, um, feeling as though you're not coming in with a bunch of other people at the same time, and also the variability in the transfer experience. Um, so sometimes folks have come from a community college, sometimes people have been to two or three institutions, sometimes our transfer students are folks who didn't go to college for a while and are coming back, and so there's it's much less of the I'm 18, I'm coming from a nearby, you know, it's, it's much less of a streamlined process, and so finding the people who have similar experiences, connecting with them, um, and really making your home here and then just learning a new university structure. Um, the benefit of being a transfer student is you've seen college before where a first year student, it's all brand new. But sometimes having seen college before, depending on what kind of institution you were coming from, where it was in the country, what it was like, if it was a research institution or a liberal arts institution, can totally look different. And so coming in and maybe thinking like, okay, I got this, and then everything being totally different can certainly be a hurdle for students. And so being able to really work through, well, what do I do now? What can I work, work off of and build off of um, and not getting bogged down by some of the differences, which I think are sometimes more exacerbated and spoken about than the things that students already come in and the knowledge and the value that they already have and the experiences that they've already had at other institutions. I think the only thing I'll add on to that, because Jenna went through a lot, so that was great, is the idea, I think, especially kind of going back to what we were talking about academically, socially, emotionally earlier, I think when you look at it, it's it can be difficult. It can be very exhilarating for a lot of students because they get to start over. And so they're looking at it kind of like high schoolers do when they come into college, right? Like, I get to, I get to be a brand new person. Um, a lot of times I think our transfers are looking at it too. They, they get to start over. They get to kind of create new friend groups, which is all amazing. But I think there's also potentially a loss of identity. So going along with what Jenna was saying about different students, so you might have a military veteran who's transferring to NC State 
who's leaving the military, and that can be a significant loss of identity Mm -hmm. from the military to higher education. And even with students coming from the community college, they have established relationships, whether it's advisors, faculty, friends. And so there could be a sense of loss or um, a sense about the dread about the changing relationships. And so it's how do we support students coming in or how do they support each other in regards to understanding that it's different Um, That doesn't make it better or worse, it's just different. And how do we cultivate those relationships with our faculty, our advisors, our fellow students in a way to create another sense of identity that matches kind of where they are in their life at NC State as well. Generally speaking, do you think most students who transfer here are overall satisfied with the transfer process and their experiences? Without overgeneralizing, I think um, a significant number of students are happy with their decision to transfer and are happy with their experience. I think it's always a loaded question because they are so variable. I think it depends on where they are in their education as well and what's just happened, right? So someone who thought they had credits transferring but the credits didn't and now they're needing to take an additional course might answer that very differently when they just found that out versus two years later when they've completed the course and it moved on. Or someone who struggled to connect with other individuals, but maybe now has finally found that friend group and feel supported um, on campus. So I think it kind of depends on where they are in that transition. Mm -hmm. But I think a majority of students who transfer in do feel satisfied by their experience and satisfied by their decision, whether it's academically, they're satisfied with their course of major and their career opportunities, Mm -hmm. or they're satisfied with athletics, or they're satisfied with involvement in those things. I think for the most part, to overgeneralize, yes, they they um, they have been satisfied with that. We are bringing in successful students, whether they are successful in high school and their SATs prove it, whether they're successful in college courses and their transcripts prove it, we're bringing in successful students all along the way. So just because someone came through a transfer admissions doesn't mean that they weren't capable the first go-round or they didn't want to come here the first go-round, but they've actually proved themselves in a college classroom, whether community college or a four-year whatever. Mm -hmm. So we're not bringing in students that happen to find a back way in. Mm -hmm. We're bringing in students who have proven Mm -hmm. their worth and their success in college classes and are not bringing that to NC State, which is a great thing because we're being able to obviously increase the population we have while at the same time bringing in amazing students just through a different way. And the students are continuing to be successful here, too. We have an organization on campus called Tossing the National Honor Society, um, which I advise. And one of the requirements is to make a 3.5 GPA in your first semester on campus. And we've had two rounds now. And the organization has had, has 170 members who've elected in. But as far as invitees, um, our first year we got to go back Um, two years back so that you could start the organization and going two years back and then looking at this year where we only went one year back which is the traditional the number's almost the same so we're having even more students being successful after that first semester every year which is good to know because it's great to get here and be like cool I'm here and then if you're not successful that's not you know not great but the fact that students are high achieving coming in they're remaining high achieving students um, I think contributes to that like are you happy here are many students I mean obviously when you're doing better you tend to be more happy with your experience anyway. But yeah, so it's it's exciting to see that as well. 
so I guess as a high schooler, like many high schoolers, I didn't really know what I wanted to do in college. Yeah, I didn't really know what I wanted to do in college, so I initially went to Wilmington for film school because that was a hobby of mine back then. But within my first semester, I realized that film school was not for me. Um, I just lost my creative edge, I guess. So I switched to biology, but Wilmington, of course, is a really good marine biology school, and their biology program was just kind of like a watered-down version of marine bio, and I really didn't care about fish, so... I uh, decided to look at my other options, so I applied to NC State and UNC, and eventually decided to come to state. But due to some bureaucratic things, I actually had to come in as an environmental science major uh, because I hadn't taken chemistry yet. And there's th these transfer uh, requirements. Uh, I came as an environmental science, and then I initially ended up doing biochemistry as well. So, so do you think it was overall better or worse than applying to college right out of high school? I don't know. It was kind of complicated trying to find my high school transcript again because they require that. And like it had been about a year since I had had access to that. So I had to like go back to my high school and try to figure that out. But I feel like uh, it was a lot less stressful because I wasn't like applying to several different schools. I was only applying to two different schools. So it was uh, a little bit easier. Um, and, you know, if, if all else fell, I still was at UNCW. Like I still was you know at a college. So it wasn't really a lot of stress this time around. So what were some of the requirements you had to fulfill in order to complete the transfer application? Uh, all the obstacles I had to overcome. Um, you had to have, obviously, you had to have, like, a strong GPA for your major. And, like, at NC State um, is very helpful. They kind of break down every department, what they want to see on a transfer application. And uh, I think you had to have, like, two biologies, a chemistry, a calculus, and you know, in English, and like, a math, like another math or something like that. Um, so that was basically all the things I did my freshman year. I kind of knocked most of those requirements out, except for the chemistry, which, you know, they're required for biology. Overall, how was the experience for you? It was kind of weird starting over again. Like, I obviously had friends who came to NC State, but, like, I feel like after you finish high school, you kind of, like, lose touch with everybody. So it was kind of weird coming back into a new school where I really didn't know anybody, and uh, I wasn't living in a dorm, so I wasn't really going to meet anybody. So that was a little weird at first, but I met a few people in the summer classes I took before, like, officially. Um transferring here and it was kind of hard leaving it was like a kind of a weird decision like do I want to stay at Wilmington where I've made all these friends and like you know kind of establish myself there like you know start all over as a sophomore transferring to a whole new school so I literally flipped a coin like over it like I had you know I just found out I was accepted finally to NC State and I was like well shoot like do I you know do I go back to Wilmington or do I go to state and so I, uh, I flipped a coin it's like hey mom I'm going to state <laughs> so that's how that happened yeah yeah Rutherford B. Hayes is my uh, I have a little presidential dollar coin and it's never scared me wrong all my tough life decisions flip a coin so were there a lot of resources at NC State that made transferring a little bit easier for you? Yeah, I mean, um, there are several programs and clubs that I knew about and wanted to join prior to coming to NC State, and so getting involved with those after transferring helped me uh, meet a lot of really interesting people. And there's a lot more opportunities here at a larger school than there is at uh, like Wilmington, which is a lot smaller. I don't know, I guess going back to like uh, all the people I've met freshman year, I think that's a kind of a very unique experience that you only get to go through once. Um, and I lost touch with almost everybody from Wilmington, which is unfortunate because there were some really cool people. So I do regret abandoning that ship, I guess. But overall, I think State is a much better school for myself. Definitely do it because State is the best school. This isn't propaganda. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Gen Ed. 
For additional information about the transfer student process at NC State, please visit admissions.ncsu.edu slash transfer. Follow us on all social media, WKNC881. The music in today's podcast is Take Me Higher by Jazar, and their music can be found on freemusicarchive.org. Thanks for listening. That about does it for this week's show. Thank you for joining us on this fantastic Tuesday evening, evening. Assuming you've been listening to this live, if you're catching our Thursday rebroadcast, good morning and good day. We hope you enjoyed the show. As always, if you heard anything you liked, you hated, or anything that made you think, let us know at publicaffairs at wknc.org. And be sure to check out our blog at wknc-eot.tumblr.com. Our intro music for today's show and every other show was Connie by L1011. You can catch another episode of Eye on the Triangle next week right here on WKNC. I'd like to thank our contributors and the rest of our staff here at Eye on the Triangle. And be sure to catch us again, uh, like Nick said, next week on Tuesday from 6 to 7 and our new Thursday 7 to 8 a.m. rerun slot for Eye on the Triangle. I'm Marissa Jordan. And I'm Nick Weaver, and this is Jeremy Avivi. Thanks again for listening in. You know the drill. Stay tuned for your usual programming of amazing indie music, and we'll see you all again next time.